Hello and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. So for Canada Reads book nerds, there is nothing more exciting than the kickoff of the annual competition than the announcement of the long list. And tonight we are kicking off our own Canada Reads season with Morgan Murray, who's the author of Dirty Birds, which is an official 2021 long list novel. Welcome, Morgan. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we are so thrilled because uh, I want to mention that your publicist uh, reached out to us and asked if we would be interested in reading the book and, and having a chat with you. And we said absolutely. And I am very thankful that she did reach out because, well, as you'll find out as we go through the whole conversation, absolutely loved Dirty Birds. And it should have been on the short list, in my opinion. But anyway. <laughs> so you got my vote for picking. <laughs> Awesome. So we'll just get started with, actually, if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. It's your first novel. Maybe a lot of us may not know you yet. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, God, nobody knows me. Um, <laughs> I barely know myself. So uh, my name is Morgan Murray, uh, not to be confused with uh, the Morgan Murray in my uh, Google Alerts, who is a star girl softball player in North Carolina. Um, <laughs> I grew up in rural Alberta on a small beef farm near an itty bitty village, uh, which is best known for being the home of the greatest figure skater who ever lived, Kurt Browning. That's our town's claim to fame. Uh, in between, I bounce around a lot, but now I live on an itty bitty farm next to an itty bitty village on the itty bitty island of Cape Breton, uh, which is in the province of Nova Scotia off the east coast of Canada. Um, and with my wife, who is Kate Beaton, uh, who's a New York Times bestselling cartoonist and children's book author and soon-to-be graphic novelist, and our uh, one-and-a-half-year-old daughter who's trying to go to sleep right as we speak. Oh, that's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your novel? And I'm, I'm really curious about how you might describe it, because it really is a very unique gift to the world, I swear. So can you tell us a little bit about the novel? Well, it's... Uh... How I explain it is it's the story of Milton, Ontario, not to be confused with Milton, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto. Uh, Milton, Ontario is a young fella from uh, Saskatchewan who graduates from college with an uh, artistic sciences degree. And he moves from his little rural community in his parents' basement to uh, Montreal to pursue fame and fortune and love and money and uh, follow in the footsteps of his hero, Leonard Cohen the famous poet and ladies' man, and uh, poor old Milton. Things don't quite work out for him. <laughs> that, is too, that, that is really, really well understated, I think. So. <laughs> um, now, did you plan to throw the hordes of Canada Reads fans for a loop when you announced your Canada Reads world tour before the shortlist was announced? Because you really did. You kind of blew up the world a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't, and... I'm sorry to anybody who uh, placed big money in Vegas on the outcome. Uh, I'm new to all of this. And uh, the kind of interesting, exciting thing, apart from just being on that list, I was totally shocked and amazed. And it was kind of on a Monday morning, I got an email from uh, my publisher saying, Happy New Year. Um, and then we giddily did a happy dance for a day and a half before they announced the, the list publicly. but. Uh, just uh, apparently uh, my book is the first independently published book out of Atlantic Canada to make the long list 
since they went to a 15 uh, book long list in 2014, I think. So that was a pretty big thing for my publisher. And there's a number of great small independent publishers in Atlantic Canada. Um, so to get some recognition like that, it, my publisher was very uh, eager to make some hay out of it. And why not? So we <laughs> hastily threw together this this tour, which quickly became a loser tour, um, which is great. I have events and interviews and things lined up for the next few weeks. And we actually sold out of the first print run of the book, which is uh, fantastic. And there's more on the way with a little tiny sticker on it that says uh, Canada Reads Long List. I don't think it says loser on the cover, but uh, people will know. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I didn't mean to scare anyone, um, but uh, we were just trying to we were we were just very excited to be on the long list. Oh, absolutely. So now since it's now a I hate to say it, a loser tour. Does that mean Shauna and I are officially part of your CBC Canada Reads Loser Tour? You are. You're a stop on my uh, world loser tour. So awesome. thank you for having <laughs> this big loser. Awesome. We are so happy. Now, you said, because I did, I did, a, I always do a lot of research on my authors and I look at your website and I do, I look at YouTube videos, which by the way, I love the one where you were sitting in the car reading from your book. That was hilarious. I love that. But anyway, <laughs> so if you haven't, I'm going to, we're going to link to that. So uh, we want to make sure people see that because I thought it was really, really funny. Anyway, you. you said that Dirty Birds is semi autobiographical. So what I'd like to know is specifically what parallels your life and what do you consider the most outrageous or favorite untruth of the book to your life? Well, it's far more autobiographical than it should be. <laughs> um, my mom read it an early draft and she laughed at the funny parts and everything. But when she was done, she kind of looked at me with sad eyes and says, oh, Morgan, did all of this really happen to you? And not all of it did, but a lot of it did. And a lot of like the basic plot of a young dummy moving from the, the farm to Montreal to become a famous literary superstar and failing miserably, but having a great time along the way and then moving back home and then moving to Newfoundland to go to grad school. All of that stuff is true. And I lived in a really crappy apartment in Montreal with four roommates who were, uh, varying degrees of outrageous characters and they were inspirations for some of the characters in the book and then you know a lot of the especially in the first half of the book a lot of the sort of inciting incidents in Milton's uh, sad existence <laughs> were from my own sad existence <laughs> um, but in terms of, of the exaggerated parts it was a lot of fun to take things that happened in my life that kind of ended with a the sound of a balloon <laughs> deflating in real life um and spice them up considerably so you know i i did work my roommate did have a uh shady construction company wow. i worked two whole days for him and uh that was about it i don't remember why i didn't work three or more days i think i got a different job but uh just to sort of reimagine that and it's it's funny because i uh 2000 Based in 2007, which was when I lived in Montreal, and 2007, uh, Facebook had just come to Canada like a few months before, so it wasn't a very big deal yet. Uh, Twitter was just a new thing. I think the first iPhone came out while I was living in, in Montreal, so it was sort of before what the internet has become. 
and people had blogs. And so I blog, I had a blog back then and I blogged about some of my experiences and some of those blog posts pretty much verbatim made it into the book. Um, but then I had a lot of fun writing parts like the, uh, the part where Milton writes this weird poem manifesto record review <laughs> thing that's so bad it makes the front page of the New York Times and it makes it on Letterman. Um, so writing that scene was a lot of fun because I did kind of time stamps and then a, a script. And um, another one that was really fun is I did go to grad school in, in Newfoundland in real life and I ended up living there for almost a decade. But Milton goes to grad school to hide out from uh, some trouble he's gotten himself into. <laughs> and to hide out extra well, he goes, uh, he takes a summer student job as a field researcher on a very remote barren island up in northern Canada, in the middle of absolute nowhere, on this little tiny island, and he sleeps in a tent, uh, and the birds poop all over him. And I just made that up. I the islands are an actual bird wildlife reserve preserve area um it's a protected area but so i just found this on the map i was like oh he could go there and do that and then i found out um uh, like a friend of a friend <laughs> posted a thing on facebook after the book had come out or after i had edited the book but before the book came out so she had no idea what was in the book but it's act an actual thing that grad students actually go to these islands and spend the summer counting the birds like oh, Milton did. So I was uh, delighted to have reinvented something that has actually happened. So it was a lot of fun to take my uh, kind of humdrum life and jazz it up considerably. So when you first moved to Montreal, did you really sort of literally, were you there with very little money? Did you start out your life in Montreal with like not very much? Yeah, I... Um, Went there. My parents gave me uh, like 200 bucks for Christmas. And I moved right after Christmas, like January, very early January 2007. So I had a couple hundred bucks and I had saved. I had worked over the Christmas holidays um, at the job I had in the summer at a gas plant in Alberta. So I had saved up. I had maybe had like five or six hundred bucks to my name and that went pretty quickly and so i remember one day and the just to comment on the reviews the book's been getting i've been getting a lot of uh really fun and, and really thoughtful reviews and it's been fantastic um but in a lot of reviews people are like you have to suspend your disbelief for a while a little bit because some really outrageous things happen in this book like for instance nobody can live off uh half rotten pineapples and day-old bagels <laughs> Well, I did. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. And so I had no, when my uh, like cash supply ran out, I went to uh, the bank carrying a grocery bag with two half rotten pineapples that I paid half price for, which I didn't realize until about 10 years later. That was not a deal. I could have bought a fresh pineapple for full <laughs> price. <laughs> and a dozen day old stale rock hard bagels. I walked into the bank and opened a bank account because I didn't have a, I just had like a, a rural credit union bank account from back home. So I didn't have a, like a big bank account. So I walked into the bank with this rotting food and opened a bank account. And there was a special promotion where they'd give any schmuck off the street, a line of credit. So I thought, Oh, sweet. I got a line of credit. I can keep living this wow. fun employed life for a few more months. And so I did that until I ran out of money and had to get a real job. And then things kind of calmed down. 
You know, I think there's nothing better than stories like that where people uh, start out in one place and then make that leap to a different, a completely different life. Because I just have to say, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and I moved to Los Angeles. So I went from Flint, Michigan, which wasn't, it was 100,000 people or whatever at the time, but I moved to Los Angeles. Now, I don't remember how much money I had, but I did not have to resort to, you know, rotten pineapple <laughs> or anything like that. But, but, I do, but I love those kind of stories because it really is about the resiliency of a dream, right? You start out and you just know you want something different than what you have, what you've grown up with. And yeah. I, I love that, which is what Milton, Ontario is, is trying to do, which is kind of, I mean, a really beautiful story. He tries. Now, <laughs> now I do want to know, though, because whenever I hear that someone has written a semi-autobiographical novel, I've never had the opportunity to ask an author this. So you are my first one. But I've always been curious, do the people in the that you've written about, do do they recognize themselves? God, I hope not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've taken a lot of liberties, but um, I've had a few people. So the like how can I say this to not get me beat up if they hear this? <laughs> the The sort of main cast of roommates that I had at the time, I haven't spoken to in quite a while because um, there, it was really a revolving door. And I had probably, I lived there for 14 or 15 months and I probably had 14 or 15 roommates. Wow. Um, but there were a couple of roommates uh, who were there the longest. And one was a, a woman from France who worked in theater and in the novel, there's a woman from France who's kind of the the matron of the household, and she works in puppet theater. <laughs> and then I had a, another roommate who was there for a little while who was from Newfoundland and ran a shady construction company, <laughs> but he was only in the apartment for a few months before he moved on. So I based two of the sort of main... Uh, Milton has the same roommates through the whole whole book, and... Georgette is the woman from France and Naughty is the Newfoundland roommate. So I, I kind of use those as a point of departure. They don't resemble the, the real people that closely, but I've had a few sort of uh, mutual friends or people who knew me at that time uh, who have read the book, write me and say, is, is Georgette who I think it is? And, <laughs> and I swear they're not, I, I swear to God, but uh, I, I never it. hold up in court. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear this because I was going to say, is there a naughty in your life? And I have to laugh because probably one of the things I love about great fiction is that you create you create characters that you just will never forget or you read characters that you'll never forget. And Milton is certainly someone I will never forget for many, many reasons. But he and Naughty, and especially Naughty, I'm telling you, I knew someone kind of like him. And that's why I think I loved him so much in the book. But so you knew, so you had kind of a naughty in your life, but maybe not the full on naughty. It, uh, could you imagine meeting a full naughty in real life? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> naughty is, is just, it, I just took him as over the top as I could. Um, if you've ever let a new, or if you've ever net, met a Newfoundlander, most of them are all characters anyway. They're, they're very gregarious <laughs> by nature. Um and I lived there for almost a decade and, and met, had so many great friendships and met so many fantastic people and so many fascinating and interesting characters. And the way they use language and the way they just live their lives is just amazing. And I had a roommate 
he a lot of his backstory was similar to Naughty's backstory. Uh, a lot of his he he was very close to Naughty in a lot of ways, but I just took Naughty kind of to the next level. If kind of if, if this roommate had uh, gotten into the crime game a little more seriously, <laughs> what would have happened and how would that have went? And that's where I took it. Um, but uh, yeah, just inspiration from, from that and then and, and living in Newfoundland for a long time, I was able to borrow different things from different characters you meet along the way. And if you ever go to Newfoundland, uh, the probably highlight of your trip will be the taxi ride from the airport because every taxi driver there is a naughty and they will talk your ear off all the way to wherever you're going and you won't want to get out because it's it's amazing you want to understand a word but um that i was going to say in the book when all of it's run together that was so funny because that part <laughs> takes a while to read for somebody like me who i've, I've never been there and i've not i'm not that familiar with the accent but i, I could get a hint of it just through that the text that you wrote it was very very funny i loved it that you that you use that device that was really cool thanks that gave my editor nightmares he, oh, we I had <laughs> we had quite the back and forth about uh how how long was appropriate to not have a space between words <laughs> it was I thought, I thought i mean it was really clever and it was and like i said it really gives you that for somebody for maybe most americans right we wouldn't necessarily know that accent but it really it visually kind of gave you a clue to kind of what you might encounter if you were there. So I really love that part of it. I do have to say that, you know, Milton, he, he wants to be, he, he believes he's a poet. He wants to be a poet. He wants to be the next Leonard Cohen. But I, I was really curious because I'm not someone who's really great with poetry. Like I'm, I don't read a lot of it. I often don't understand it quite frankly. So yep. what I want to know was all of Milton's poetry bad because some of it kind of seemed good. Or was it really bad? Because I don't even know. <laughs> well, uh, that question about semi-autobiography. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's some semi-autobiographical poetry in there as well. Awesome. Seriously, that's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I may have dabbled in poetry when I was living in Montreal a little bit too much. And I, I, I agree with you as well about there there's like good poetry that you can kind of understand how it's good. And then there's a lot of like not good poetry and not good poetry is like listening to some stranger tell you about their dreams <laughs> where yeah. nothing makes sense. And you're like, what is, what are you even talking about? Um, good poetry is it, it, like, is Shakespeare yeah. <laughs> basically, but uh, there's a lot of not, there are a lot in the middle anyway. So I started, I, I, heard Allen Ginsberg read Howl on a YouTube video or something mm -hmm. in my last year of university and was like, whoa, <laughs> like any 21-year-old male does when they encounter any of the beatniks, they go, whoa. And so I just started writing these awful poems and uh, I wrote a lot of them. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I went to a few open mic nights at like spoken word festivals and stuff, which were almost exclusively French. And I would get up and read this awful poetry to a French audience. <laughs> <laughs> and there may be YouTube videos of this, but don't look for them um, because I'm trying really hard to get them <laughs> erased from the record. No, no, you do realize you're speaking to a librarian, right? Because now it's going to be my mission to find those. 
<laughs> so some of Milton's poetry in the book I had to make up. Some of it I just copy and pasted from old journals and stuff. And like writing so I should be nicer to poets because I love poets and uh they're they're wonderful and I know a lot of really great poets. So it's easy to write sort of middling poetry. It's really hard to write really good poetry and it's really hard to write really bad poetry. Yeah. <laughs> so um I kind of worked really hard on on making Milton's po poetry. A lot of his like earlier stuff when he's in high school and stuff, that was all new. Most of his Montreal poetry was just uh straight out of Morgan Murray's Dream Journal 2007. I I, I love I love knowing that. I'm gonna have to go back and reread the poetry now and, and, and check it out a little closer. And I, I I jokingly say that if you want a, a collection of your bad poetry to be published, you just have to write a 500 page novel around it. <laughs> there you go. That's well, my trick. There you go. You you made it. You made it into the big <laughs> big world of poetry. There, you you got it in there. That's good. Now now there is a point at which, of course, Milton does try to have a little bit of a legitimate life and get a proper job. So he ends up working for Calco, which is kind of like a call center place. And I have to tell you that it took me a second, but when I saw where uh, the training that he had to go through, it, you really captured to me that, that idea of working for a big company where you're forced to do this kind of training that nobody believes in anyway, but you're forced to do it. You captured that whole piece of it. It gave me shivers of remembering working for companies like that in the past. So what I want to know is, have you personally, since now we're learning so much, so many of your these experiences were yours, have you personally undergone deep subject happiness incentive training? <laughs> I feel like every job I've had has had some deep subject happiness incentive training involved. <laughs> I love that. That was so funny. Oh my God. I mean, it took me a second to figure it out. And then when I went back and I went, wait a minute, what was that second part of that training? And that just made me laugh. So thank you for doing that. That was like a little hidden, like a little gem of a laugh in your book. I love that part. So thank you. Oh, for thank that. You. I'm glad it uh, resonated. <laughs> okay. So now at a point, there's a certain point too, that Calco has to close due to a catastrophic event and that you said that it moved to planet flint and i was really curious if that was supposed to be flint michigan which is where i was born and raised yes it was uh, yes. small awesome. world awesome. and my knowledge of flint is sort of the sad bad water yeah. stuff that's been in the news more yeah. recently and uh roger and me by michael moore <laughs> so <laughs> i figured the car jobs left. There's got to be people who work want to work at a call center. That's where the these predatory call center yeah. magnates would go next. Yeah. No, I I I thought that's what it was. I really felt. I just felt there was that vibe there that you were really referring to our Flint, and so I appreciate that. Thank you for putting that in there. So now, just for you. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Now, I think this. I'm really curious about this because I think this this next question. This kind of could go either way, right? But at one point, Nadi says, things are just fine in Newfoundland. And Milton responds, I'm sure it is for some people who don't know any better. And I wondered, do you worry sometimes that people might be offended, like maybe Newfoundlanders would be offended by that or others? Or you just went with the joke? I mean, went with the, I mean, it's not a joke. It's a very funny sort of thing. Did you, you worry? Uh, well, I have a question for you, kind of. 
having read this, you're the first American I've talked to who's, who's read the book. Was it too Canadian for you? You know, that's a great question. Personally, well, first of all, I'm a big, you know, lover of Canada. And so, and we, I grew up, you know, we're an hour from the border. And then I lived in California for 30 years and came back. And when I came back, I rediscovered my love of Canada. And so for me, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I know a lot of these things. Like I, I'm a geography major, so I knew all the provinces anyway, et cetera. I knew all that, but I don't think it is. I think that Milton speaks to the human condition, right? That's why I say people who pick up from one place and go to another and then have a wild story. I don't think it's too, too Canadian. And, and, you know, you had said that you had kind of heard that before, but no, I absolutely think that anyone could read this book. Any, and I have friends like in Australia, anyone could read this book. And I don't think it's too Canadian. And especially because whenever I read something that maybe doesn't, I don't quite understand it. I just look it up. Yeah. And thank you for the footnotes, by the way, because you <laughs> saved me a lot of time having to look up stuff that I didn't know. So I don't think it's too Canadian at all. No. So part, part of my, um, I don't know, affliction is I, I was a Canadian studies major in, in my undergrad, um, which is a terrible thing to do to yourself. It's basically a, a degree in Canadian trivia. So it's really hard for me to get out of that mindset. And I'm very um, interested and engaged in, in the history and the politics and the things that are happening in Canada. And um, especially, uh, and I spent a little bit time in, in the earlier parts of the book about um, our history of colonization and our treatment of indigenous people and um, a really dark stain on, on Canadian history that a lot of people are kind of ignorant of. And Milton lives in Saskatchewan or grew up in Saskatchewan and Saskatchewan, for those of you who don't know, is uh, just a square on the map. And it was drawn by somebody who had never been to Saskatchewan. I guarantee you that. And then surveyors cut it up into little tiny blocks and gave it away to uh, poor white Europeans. Um, and it kind of erased all of the history and all of the geography of the place and everything that came before. And he, uh, the village he grows up in is called Belly Button, um, which is a fictitious <laughs> version of the village where my grandparents are from. And the like only little town in Saskatchewan I'd go to regularly because my great grandmother lived there until I was a teenager. Um, I grew up next door in Alberta. But I, I, put all that sort of colonial stuff in there and, and belly button is on the banks of a lake, uh, a reservoir made by two dams by this, uh, the only prime minister to ever come out of Saskatchewan, John Diefenbaker, who was kind of this uh, lackluster <laughs> bumbling, dumbling fool, but they named this lake after him and they flooded a big part of the prairie and everything. And uh, in where the lake was going to flood was this very sacred uh, indigenous meeting spot. And I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it's a Cree name and I'm going to <laughs> do a bad job of pronouncing it. Um, but it was this big rock that the glacier had left there and it looked kind of like a buffalo. And so it had been this like meeting spot for different tribes to um, discuss tree, tr uh, treaties and trade and war and peace and whatever and celebrations and it was this really important spot for tens of thousands of years and so the government is damming these two rivers to bring electricity to southwestern saskatchewan for the first first time and they're going to flood this rock and it's going to be under 
a few hundred feet of water. And so the uh, indigenous elders ask if the government can move the rock because it's significant. And the government's response is to fill the rock full of dynamite and blow it up and then hand them a chunk of the rock and say, here you go, <laughs> which is absurd and awful and pretty good symbol of Canada's history <laughs> for 500 years in one little anecdote. And so um, I will get to your question about Newfoundland. <laughs> it's Milton is, is ignorant of all of this kind of history that he's living in. And part of the, the things I wanted to seriously explore was how do you become like a decent human being in a world where either through our own ignorance or through just the forces of society and our culture and our communities, we're ignorant of our own histories. We're ignorant of, sort of our place in the world, Milton moves from this very uh, kind of absurd colonial symbol, <laughs> this square place with this blown up rock, um, to Montreal, which is uh, the, mo the biggest, most metropolitan city in Quebec, which is a French-speaking province. Um, they've had referendums on uh, whether or not to separate from Canada. In the 70s, they had a violent terrorist movement, which was sort of a Taint, a slightly tamer version of the, they had the troubles in Northern Ireland. There were bombings and kidnappings and murders and stuff um, like that. It, it's just a very fraught and, and complicated place. The English and the French had been at war for centuries before they got to Canada. And then when they got to Canada, they kept those wars going. The Canada was kind of constructed around erasing the indigenous population and also subverting the French population. And so there was a lot of political maneuverings as Canada was being created to do that. Um, so Quebec and, and particularly Montreal are these really complicated places and Quebec for a long time in the, in the uh, 20th century, last century um, was sort of the Catholic church was very powerful for the French speakers and worked very closely with the provincial government to make sure that the the French-speaking society was very agrarian and sort of working class and poor, uh, which allowed English speakers and English companies to come in and sort of reap all the financial benefits. And so up until the 1960s, sort of all the wealth in Quebec belonged to English speakers. And then there was, they called it the Quiet Revolution, which wasn't that quiet, but this is a huge, this is a really long lecture on Canadian history. Anyway, Milton moves to this uh, French place with this complicated history, and he lives in this Anglophone bubble where there's a lot of students at the two English universities in Montreal. There's a lot of people like Nadi who are in their 30s and 40s who just move to uh, Montreal because the rent is very cheap in Montreal because uh, all the investment left when they had a referendum <laughs> to about separation. Um, and so rents went way down and so you could live there very cheaply and be a pretend artist for next to nothing uh, like I did. And he's ignorant of all the history that's going on around him. And then he goes to Newfoundland and it's the same thing. And so that line that you cite is, is both a comment on um, sort of that phenomenon of, of, you know, this detachment from place and, and how do you become a, your authentic, decent human being and how do you become I was particularly interested in how do you become a, a not awful white male um, in society uh, this day and age when it's slowly, gradually, finally starting to change where 
the millenniums of awful white males who have run things into the ground, uh, even though we continue to elect them, but uh, their unfettered authority is starting to be questioned finally. And so for, for that comment about Newfoundland, I'm not worried about Newfoundlanders getting upset about that because Newfoundland is a very complicated place as well. And it has a complicated history. And right now it's on the verge of bankruptcy because of a bad uh, hydroelectric dam project they did. And so it, it was, Newfoundland is, is a wonderful place full of wonderful people, but it's also a very complicated place. And that's just sort of a comment on the, the whole Milton, everywhere Milton goes, uh, he goes to these really complicated places, but he it makes no difference that he's there to him or the place. And he makes no contribution to these places and these places don't affect him in any way. Um, he's just driven by this blind ambition to be a terrible poet and be Leonard Cohen. Well, you know, it's funny because I read that completely differently and that it, that would be my American bias, I think. So that's that's really fascinating because the way I read it, it's really kind of interesting. I read it like, you know, in the United States, there's this idea that, you know, the two the two coasts, you know, New York and sort of Los Angeles and everything else is a flyover state. And so basically we in this country often think that everybody who lives between the two coasts, they're a bunch of hicks and they don't know anything. So I kind of took it sort of like, oh, the people aren't that bright, like in Newfoundland. You know what I mean? Like they're not that bright, like the way we talk about everybody who doesn't live in New York or Los Angeles. So I put, completely put an American spin on that. So thank you for that explanation, because that's actually really I love the whole thing, because I'm interested in all of the, the things you're talking about. So, well, and, and yeah. with Newfoundland in particular, it's a hard, harsh place. Um, uh, it's literally like. I, I don't think you can understand how far away from North America it is until you go there. And when I started grad school in 2008 there, I drove from Alberta and wow. um, Halifax, which may be a city, you, you know, it's half a million people, capital of Nova Scotia on the East coast. When you get to Halifax, you're looking at the Atlantic ocean. St. John's, the capital of Newfoundland is at least a three day drive away from Halifax. <laughs> Uh, it took me four days to drive to Halifax from Alberta. So Halifax is basically halfway to Newfoundland from the rest of Canada. It's it's Newfoundland is as remote as you can possibly get. And the weather there is unlike anything you will ever experience. It's like everywhere has weather and everybody talks about the weather everywhere. And everybody says, oh, wait five minutes. It'll change everywhere except for probably Arizona. But um Newfoundland, the weather is, I, I don't even have words to describe how <laughs> miserable it is all the time. It snows um, on average, I think, 16 feet per year in Newfoundland, in St. John's. Um, luckily, it rains about that much, too. So you're just always wet. There, there were years I lived there where there'd be three months without the sun. Um, <laughs> when the sun finally comes out for a week in August everybody is the happiest you'll ever see them um even though a week before they were ready to just murder everybody because they all had seasonal depression um but so it's it's this it's this really complicated harsh place and and i think newfoundlanders understand that and appreciate that and there's a a saying in newfoundland the arse is out of her and something's broken and i i don't think too many newfoundlanders would uh, argue that point right now just between everything going on there and everything in the country. Um, you know, we like to compare ourselves 
sort of measure how we're doing as a country compared to the United States. And uh, it's been a rough few years down in the United States. So we've been thinking we're doing pretty, pretty good, but uh, the arse is out of her up here too. So we've got a lot. So you must have, you must have loved Newfoundland if you were there for 10 years, right? I mean, that's a long time in a place that's as complex and as you're, as you're saying. Yeah. It's, it it was a, a great sort of balance between the big city and the small farm where I came from. Um, because it's a small, like St. John's, the capital is a hundred thousand people, um, but it's very remote. So whatever there is in Newfoundland, it's in St. John's, you know, we had the one Costco in the provinces in St. John's and they built a, ho- a hotel next to it for people <laughs> coming from out of town. Um, and I worked at the university there and, and it, it's a really great university and I met a lot of really great people and the weather you kind of take on this sort of garrison mentality where you're all in it together. And some of my favorite days of the year were snow days when everybody on our street would come out and shovel themselves out. And it was like the street festival, even though everybody's sweating and (laughs) cold, Um, but it was just this different environment. And and so it, it had this love hate relationship with the weather and with sort of the, economy and the, the politics of the place but the the community aspect of it and the small townness of it um really uh, felt like home to me for for the longest time and and so yeah i stayed and um it took a, a woman from cape breton to come kidnap me away <laughs> <laughs> well and thank you for talking about that because uh, i i have a few friends who have, have a connection to newfoundland no one's ever really talked about it in very much detail to me. So thanks for sharing that because as an American, my post-retirement, my first post-retirement trip is going to be to Eastern Canada. And I do want to see, I want to go there and everything. So I really look forward to um, having that, having that experience, especially after kind of, you know, all of what you just said, it's really fascinating. It's and, and, this is a now a Newfoundland podcast, but the geography of that <laughs> island yeah. will blow your mind because it's unlike anywhere else I've ever seen on Earth. Parts of it are like the moon, parts yeah. of it are like New Zealand, parts of it are like the the Appalachian Mountains go up one side of it, and the other side apparently broke off Africa twenty bajillion years ago. So it's just a it. There's no place like it on Earth. People, geography, climate. It's a, trip yeah and that's my thing so i'm gonna I, i'm just gonna love that so well let's let's go back i want to i have one sort of one final question about um dirty birds specifically and then and uh, we'll wrap up shortly here but so there's a filmmaker named robin who shoots a, a, a short film about seagulls and she talks about dirty birds and says that like people these beautiful birds are quote bound by gravity desire yearning and appetites yet they muck about fucking, fighting, living, dying, unquote. Um, and I was curious, which idea came first when you were writing the novel? Was it this idea, Was it is it that beautiful way of pointing out about the birds or the imperfect humans? Like what, what sort of came first in your mind when you decided to write your novel? Uh, the, the birds came second. Um, okay. <laughs> and uh, the... The working title was called, it was Milton, Ontario for the longest time was the name of the book. Um, And I didn't, Dirty Birds kind of appeared to me as I was falling asleep one night. I was like, oh, that's a good title. 
And I went back in and changed a lot of characters' names to bird names. So Robin mm -hmm. is Robin. Uh, mm -hmm. Naughty is there. This is another Newfoundland thing. Uh, Newfoundland owes me royalties after this. Uh, <laughs> Naughty is a bird that I think is in like South America, South southern half of Africa, maybe in New Zealand and stuff. And it's a certain kind of bird. But there's a different kind of bird in Newfoundland um that is colloquially referred to as a naughty because it nods its head when it flies oh okay so <laughs> naughty is the newfoundland version of that and so most of the sort of secondary characters have uh bird names yeah ava yeah. ava a uh, ruddy is a kind of duck um i can't remember who, who else is in my book but <laughs> sam the uh New Zealand guy, his last name is, I cannot remember what it is now, but it's a, a New Zealand bird, um, yeah. everything like that. The, I, didn't, I didn't catch any of that. Darn it all. That's so cool. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I had this idea for Milton wanting to sort of go on this quest to find meaning and purpose in his life. And I kind of built it around Leonard Cohen was kind of his God and he was trying to find God in a way in a non-religious, non-spiritual way, but kind of that, that one sort of uh, thing that ties everything together and gives his life purpose and meaning. And he was going to go through all these things that he wanted to, uh, he thought were those that that's kind of success and purpose. So he wants to get rich and he gets rich. He wants to be famous for his writing and he becomes famous for his writing. He wants to meet Leonard Cohen he meets Leonard Cohen. He wants to become a ladies' man. He becomes a ladies' man. So all of these things that he thinks give life meaning and purpose and are the, the you know, epitomes of success, he accomplishes them all, but they're all dismal failures. <laughs> <laughs> like at one point, he, he has more, he has a box of extra money in his room that he can't spend or launder fast <laughs> enough, but he's not a success <laughs> and he gets professional success and he gets power and he gets all of these these different things and so i kind of made a list at the start and then wanted them to, to run them through this ringer and then the birds um started off as just uh he meets robin this really pretentious artist at this party and falls in love with her and i just wanted to come up with what's the most absurdly stupid kind of thing that an artist shouldn't be pretentious about well, it's spending three years in a Calcutta dump making a seven-minute short black-and-white silent film about seagulls. <laughs> and then the bird motif kind of built from there. And uh, I sent Milton to Newfoundland, and he studies seagulls at yeah. grad school. And there's a bunch of different bird things. And even in some of the language, I talk about how the the sort of uh, Toronto refugee 20 somethings they flock to montreal and, and stuff like that so i just started seeding in as much bird stuff as i could um i read the, the the list of bird species on wikipedia probably a thousand times and stuff like that so now i'm gonna have to go back through the book because yeah all the things you're saying it's like duh like i didn't even connect the dots on that i mean i can't even believe that but yeah yeah and it's 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 part of uh and and it became a useful sort of metaphor for these characters and for the sort of migration and and stuff. And there's a a academic barroom brawl over 
<laughs> how to classify certain species of seagulls because they're eating from the dump instead of the sea. Um, and and part of that is just this ridiculous absurdity, but also part of it is is sort of this, you know, what do we make of these 20, 30 somethings who like I like to to tell people like my parents when they graduated high school, they went out and got the jobs that they've had for 40 years and they're retiring from. My dad has worked the same job for over 40 years and my mom retired a couple years ago after 30 years or something at the same jobs they've had since before I was born. I, I was just remembering today uh, on my 30th birthday, it was my birthday the other day, so I don't know, I was feeling nostalgic. On my 30th birthday, I was an intern. <laughs> I was getting paid, um, but my job title was intern. And this was after grad school and Montreal, whatever the hell that was, and five years to do an undergrad degree and all of this flitting about through my 20s. And, and it's a phenomenon for people my age where, if you, especially if, if you grow up in a rural community, you have to leave because you need an education, like a post-secondary degree to get a decent job that pays a living wage. You can't get a job out of high school. And there's no universities in Belly Button, Saskatchewan, so you have to leave. <laughs> and then you get your head filled with all these notions of of things you can become. You know, I don't know if, if it was like this for any generations before, but we are sort of the millennial. I'm on the edge of the millennials um, where we were told we could do things with our lives, not just, you know, work at the plant. And so you get filled with these ideas that you can become a poet. And so you become migratory and you become, you know, not based in anywhere and you're just going back and forth and wherever and it doesn't really matter. And, um, you know, my wife is from Cape Breton and I'd never been to Cape Breton <laughs> until I met my wife. And now I live in Cape Breton. And if you add, like my grandparents probably couldn't even point out Cape Breton on a map before I lived here kind of thing. So, you know, just the migrant bird metaphor motif thing it it became this thing that became important to the themes of the book as well which was quite a handy coincidence <laughs> um, but you know and, and i don't know if how everybody writes novels but a lot of it was you know figuring out these a lot of it for me was either sticking to with the main themes of sort of milton's quest for purpose and meaning or trying to come up with a really stupid joke and then just building off the coincidences that came with that. Because Milton, Ontario is a is a suburb. I have to be careful what I say because I have an event with the Milton Public I Library know. this week. <laughs> and I'm scared they're going to kill me because I say some bad things about Milton, Ontario, the character. But uh, it's just, you know, an ordinary suburb of Toronto now. And it was named after John Milton, the poet, uh, for completely arbitrary reasons. Just the person who was naming the town like John Milton, the poet. <laughs> had no connection to John Milton the poet but it works as the name of this aspiring dummy poet guy who's in my book so it was just a lot of happy coincidence I'm sure all novels write themselves like that well see this is why we always say it's better to read a book with someone else because often they will point out the things that you completely overlook and you might come up with a gem yourself so I needed Shauna to have finished the darn book so we could have talked about this before she probably would have pointed this out to me by the way but anyway so well my thank you for all of that I mean I really am fascinated so but I do we do have our kind of our last question but actually um, I, I have a question oh yeah <laughs> 
Okay. Since you already keep throwing me under the bus here. He jumped right in there. Scared me. <laughs> At one point, you break the fourth wall and mention yourself as the character that Milton is wanting to... Gosh, I'm trying to remember how it goes now. But you are really talking about, you mentioned that it's a guy named Morgan. Is that the point? Because I know you guys talked about earlier uh, about it being semi-autobiographical. Is that the point in which a a reader is supposed to get that? Or um, are they supposed to know that as an outside the, the story piece? Um, that's another stupid joke. And, uh, I don't think you're at the point where I break the fourth wall again, Ah. (laughs) (laughs) but I I do it a couple times to part of, part of this too was, was, I don't know if it was cathartic or not, but looking back at the bad poetry I wrote in 2007, the bad (laughs) life decisions I was making in 2007, the complete like listlessness of my existence and the existential crisis I was buried in in 2011 or 2007 and 2011, 2021. But uh, just all of that stuff was ridiculous. And, and, and I wanted to kind of like kick myself, my 2007 self. So calling Milton Morgan was kind of a nice way to do that. It was a nice way to be like, this isn't just fake people. This is, you know, kind of some some uh, uh, picking on myself, making fun of myself a little bit about, you know, these are bad decisions that a real person who wrote this book may have made, maybe just a little winking thing. And I, I was and, and like you'd see in the book, it's, it's full of illustrations and, and a bunch of different formats of storytelling and 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 things there's scripts and there's time things and there's a newspaper article sideways and stuff so i also like to throw the reader fun things to chew on to and and i thought that was a fun thing and there's like an illustration of milton earlier in the book which the the fourth wall breakage you're referring to is he's uh dreaming of becoming a huge literary success and writing a tell-all novel about his life and calling it morgan murray yes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and saying he moves from like Texas to New York and becomes world famous poet and stuff. Um, so I thought it was a fun little nugget for a reader to to have, and it, it does sort of hint that yeah, this is too true to more true than I, I would like to admit. But uh, a lot of this happened. Yeah, well, I thought it was brilliant because. I don't think I've ever read that in a book before. And when I, I read it once and I'm like, that's the author's name. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't clicking. And it, I probably read it three or four times. I was like, oh, my gosh, is this really happening? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to make sure I got the chance to ask about that. Well, it happens again. Look forward to it. I, yeah, I want right. to hear what how you... Uh what you make of the next next time it happens <laughs> okay all right so we do thank you shauna for popping in i do appreciate that that was that was a good question and then our final question is just you mentioned your wife uh kate beaton who is a noted cartoonist and etc and all of these uh, things that she does as well she did the cover art for dirty birds which i love i just think that's really beautiful and so i was c- curious if the two of you have any plans for a collaboration to, you know, the two of you? And then also, are you working on anything new? And is there any chance 
there's any news like how soon that might be. Well, we just announced on Facebook, it's Facebook official, our latest collaboration <laughs> is a new baby. Yay, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So we're, we're working on that, uh, launching in August. There will be no tour. <laughs> Katie just sat down beside me after putting the baby to sleep, so she's a hero, and uh, she's a brilliant artist in her own right, and uh, we were trying to make the cover on short notice to get it in some catalog for some fancy book show of some kind and i was uh me and the the publisher designer were going back and forth with all these really bad ideas and she was sitting on the couch next to me laughing and she said give me that and it took about five minutes to sketch out the what became the cover and it's beautiful but uh she's also uh involved in about 800 projects at the moment <laughs> so she's working on those i'm working on this uh, we're working on a uh, family and then uh, we would, I think like she might think otherwise, but I, you know, we've talked about uh, working on different projects together and, you know, I can write and can't draw very well. As you saw from the, I did the illustrations inside the book and they're kind of sketchy and uh, she can draw and she can write and, and she can do all kinds of brilliant stuff. So it'd be, I'd be very happy to work with her. So we'll keep you posted on, on, how, what comes of that once she's done her current 800 things. And um, as for me, the next thing, I had been working on a book proposal for a nonfiction book before Dirty Birds kind of took on a life of its own. And I got an agent through the jigs and the reels. I didn't have a, there's a Newfoundland saying for you. I didn't have an agent when I got the book deal for Dirty Birds, but I have one now. And so we've been kind of scheming on, you know, what should I work on next? Here's a list of every idea in my head. What do you think? And she's like, whoa. She said, so she suggested I work on this nonfiction idea. But now that um, I have a novel out in the world and it's been as warmly received as it has, much to my shock and for how many curse words are in it, I feel like another novel is in order. So I need to figure that out. I've got some ideas, but nothing is uh, finalized or sold or anything but um we're gonna see how quickly i can <laughs> i can move on that but also releasing a novel in the middle of the pandemic it's my first novel so it's the only way i know but apparently it's a crazy thing to do and so usually i think how it goes is you launch a book and you have a few months of sort of heavy promotion and then a big swarm of other books come and wash it away from memory um <laughs> But it's been a weird year, and so we're also trying to stretch out Dirty Bird's life as much as possible because it was, you know, because of the pandemic and stuff. So the Canada Reads thing was a great chance to kind of pop its head up again, and, and we're trying to um, hopefully have a few other things I can announce about it in a little while so it can take on a little bit more life and, and extend itself that way. And then if God willing, if we ever get vaccinated and are allowed to see each other in real life again, I would love to read it in front of actual people instead of just a computer screen for once or making weird videos with my parents. <laughs> I love that video. That was really funny. Well, I just want to say uh, to, to you, we, um, I absolutely love the book. I know Shauna, when she gets through the end of it, I can't wait to discuss it with her in great detail because I, I loved it. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, your publicist reached out to us because I don't know that I would have 
pick this book up. I mean, I don't know that I would have come across it, to be honest. And why yeah, would you? <laughs> yeah, well, and it's funny because the pandemic did really mess with people's uh, lives in so many ways, especially authors who were launching something and didn't get to follow the traditional route. But we will do everything we can on our end to get people to read it already. Some of my friends have said, oh, it's on my list now because you thought it was so funny. And, oh, thank and you. so I, yeah, so we'll do it uh, in our small way. We'll put it out there as much as we can. And Morgan, just thank you so much for spending time and chatting with us. I learned a lot. And I, in if you do a nonfiction, I guarantee I'm going to read it because I love nonfiction as well. So um, thank you All so right. much for being with us tonight. Well, thank you for entertaining my uh long filibuster about Canadian history in the middle of this otherwise lovely interview. Thanks for humoring me. Thanks for listening and follow us on Instagram at Canada Reads American Style. You can find Morgan on Facebook at Morgan Murray Writes. Have a spectacular day. Bye.